0: This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 15th of October, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people.
1: welcome to the new politics podcast in this episode the new economic research that will change the way that we think about the minimum wage and climate change continues to cause problems for the coalition problems that they need to sort out very very quickly i'm eddie Djokovic, editor of new politics i'm david lewis manhattan-based consulting detective and thank you to all those new patreon subscribers you're part of the push to promote independent journalism so thank you very much And if you want more details about our Patreon account, you can find the details at newpolitics.com.au. We've also got a few new book projects coming up as well. We don't know exactly what they are yet, but just letting you know that there's a few things happening in the background and we'll keep you posted about these as soon as possible. David, it's always good to read a good book about politics, don't you think? I have many of them and could always use a few more, even if I have to co-write them myself. It's not often that economists make it into the news headlines, but this week we saw the Nobel Prize for Economics given to three economists, David Card, Joshua Angrist and Guido Imbens for their research on the minimum wage. Now it might sound a little bit dry but the minimum wage issue has dominated politics in the US and in Australia for many many years with the business sector arguing that it's essential to cut wages to increase productivity and lower wages enable them to employ more people. But now we've got real-life evidence that disproves this idea. In their research these economists chose two identical labour markets in the US, one which had the highest minimum wage in America and another market in a different state with a much lower minimum wage. And their research showed that in the market with the highest minimum wage, employment went up by 13%, and this was during a recession. And it led to higher profits and economic benefits in other sectors of the economy. The Business Council of Australia and the Liberal Party, they're always arguing for lower minimum wages. And not just minimum wages, but all wages. And the idea is that this will boost employment and the economy, but it might be time to rethink these ideas because it's not actually correct. And there's a Nobel Prize out there to prove that they are totally incorrect. Yeah, it seems counterintuitive that you pay people
0: more and that affects the bottom line of business. In fact, business becomes more productive because people are more motivated. More people have more money, so they spend more, which folds back into the business. One of the things Karl Marx was right on was on the the value of wages. And he essentially argued that wages are the only expense that you can guarantee return value. If you buy a machine, the machine depreciates. If you pay a human being, they gain knowledge, they gain experience, they have loyalty to the company, they become more valuable. Sometimes they get promoted into better jobs where they work even more efficiently and help run the business better, sometimes they stay in the same job and and become extremely good in that job. It's not surprising that they found this. And of course, it requires not having greed as part of your makeup. And that's the trouble with most of the, at least management of the Business Council of Australia, they're greedy and they don't quite understand that, If you pay a bit more, you'll get a bit more. They don't want to pass it down. And I suppose the other thing I should mention is that in Australia, we don't talk about minimum wage. We talk about awards, which include holidays, sick leave, workers' compensation, superannuation, and other benefits that a company may or may not include as part of your wage package. And so they're trying to reduce holidays. They're trying to reduce sick leave they're trying to reduce superannuation. They hate superannuation. And they also hate pensions. So I don't know what they expect us to do when we get too old to work. I think we also need to remember that that's how they get you. They cut the award wage and then slowly chip away at your benefits that have been hard-earned and hard-won.
1: Now, we've argued for some time that New economic thinking needs to be adopted, not just in Australia, but all around the world, and a pandemic provides an excellent opportunity to implement this new thinking that challenges some long-standing views and ideas about economics. But it was another economist, John Maynard Keynes, who actually suggested that when the facts change, he changes his mind as well. And maybe this is the time that minds need to be changed. And it's hard to challenge the prevailing orthodoxy, especially long-held views. It might make basic mathematical sense to lower wages, increase business profits, and employ people or employ more people. But economics is based around more complex mathematical situations. And it also has to take into account human behaviour as well. Economists have accepted for a long time that the well being of the community results in the well being of the economy. But it seems that it's the business community and the political class that is out of step here. Australian businesses have been reluctant to adopt new ideas, even the ones that could actually benefit them. Ideas such as working from home, a four-day working week with a five day wage, higher salaries, primarily because they apply basic ideas to complicated problems you alluded to this before on face value working a four-day week and being paid for five days doesn't actually make sense until it's shown that productivity increases and people do more work in four days compared to working a five-day week so it's possible to have practices that do seem counterintuitive but arrive at the right outcomes and a higher minimum wage or higher wages in general seems to be one of those ideas
0: when you think through it it makes more sense people are happier. People are happier to do dangerous and boring and mundane and hard jobs for more money. There's a certain type of person, it's certainly not all managers, but there's a certain type of person who begrudge paying people, who begrudge paying anything. And they're usually the ones who are the first ones for government handouts and the last ones to pay tax It's an evolutionary thing, I think. Back when, before we started forming civilizations, it was important to hoard. It was important to gorge yourself on food because if you came across, say, a a fig tree, you ate all the figs or as many as you could because it wasn't going to be there when you came back because someone or something else would have eaten it. You killed as much meat as you could and stored it for as long as you could because hunting is hard work and very time-consuming, and you just needed to have as much as you could get at once so that you could live through to the next time you got an abundance of food or supplies. Trouble with that, in a collective society, which is what happens when we form cities, and in a technologically advanced society, which means we can store things safely for much longer periods of time, and this hoarding and binging becomes less necessary and is shown as we go on to be rather pointless. The top 1% of the world owns 90% of its resources or something like that. This is totally ridiculous and completely unnecessary. How you break that hard wire, I'm not sure. But it's something that needs to be done at all levels of society, not just the economically poorer ones and, and the middle. It has to go from, well, the top down.
1: So economic theories do need to be tested out into real-world scenarios and real-world situations, and that's what's happened in the US with that recent research and testing on minimum wages. But there are some other real-life economic examples in Australia as well. The Turnbull government, they reduced penalty rates back in 2018 under the promise of boosting employment, and just to point out, at the same time, while Penalty rates went down. Federal MPs were awarded a 2% pay increase. That promise of an increase in employment just never occurred. The changes to penalty rates, that actually contributed to the recession that Australia was predicted to have in early 2020 before the pandemic arrived as an excellent distraction to the federal government's poor economic management. And during the pandemic, Australia has also had other real-life examples of related economic experiments. Within economic circles, there has been some debate about the merits of a universal basic income. That doesn't seem to have reached the level of political debate yet, but there's been a form of universal basic income during the time of the pandemic. The JobKeeper support was the equivalent of roughly around $31,000 per year. It didn't actually apply to everyone, but it helped sustain the economy during a pandemic. And there's also been an equivalent support offered to New South Wales and Victoria during their respective lockdowns but these payments they supported the economy during a very very difficult time and it stopped it from crashing.
0: We can compare it to the Rudd-Swan payouts of the GFC. Rudd and Swan just gave a couple of lots of $2,000 to nearly everybody anyone earning under $120,000 a year or some such. Yeah, the coalition payouts were less broad. Not everybody got them. They paid them in a lot of cases straight to business, who kept them, who either reinvested them in other things or paid them as uh, director's fees or just didn't use them at all and came back with profits that it was clear that they didn't need. Now, to be fair, some of the companies said, yes, thanks for that. We didn't need that and paid it back or at least paid some of it back. And those companies that paid it back, I thought, did very well when they had made a profit. And to be fair, at the beginning of it, to apply for it thinking, yes, we are going to need this, then turning out that you didn't, that's a perfectly reasonable thing. And to pay it back was the right thing to do. Not all companies did this, of course, and just kept the money, which has hurt them. I don't think they'll make the same type of profit next year as the, that realisation goes through. Under Rudd, we became one of the top economies in the world. Under Morrison, we've slipped, it slipped out of the G20. And there's a difference. The Liberal Party, since 2013, aren't good economic managers and basically sent the money to themselves and their donors rather than help the whole of society and that's the mark of a good government and it's not a left right thing in these things there's different ways of being able to help everybody or at least attempting to help everybody and as much as he argues that he has the basic facts suggest that he hasn't
1: well i think the job overall the job keeper program did show that all of these ideas that seemingly counterproductive It's not so much that it was coming from the field of economics, but many people were saying, well, how can we afford to pay all these people all this money that's going out? $31,000 for the year, that's going to break the economy. But it didn't actually break the economy. It supported the economy. So we do have these ideas that seem counterintuitive, but they actually work. And I guess it gets back to economic leadership as well. Generally, economic leadership requires strong political leadership as well. And instead of caving into the demands of business and vested interests that ended up being Self-defeating, in that example of the reduction of penalty rates, Malcolm Turnbull should have ignored those calls from the business community and the Business Council of Australia in 2017 and 18 to reduce penalty rates. And just because a vested interest wants you to do something in politics, it doesn't mean that you have to do it. And this is difficult for political leaders to resist. But on these matters, you've got to listen to what the economists have to say about these kinds of issues and I do know that if you get 10 economists in a room, you'll probably end up getting 11 different opinions, probably even more. But you get the best advice if you're a politician or if you're a political leader. Get the best advice, proceed with the long-term economic thinking that generates the best economic outcome, and not just the three-year political cycle and for those vested interests.
0: Malcolm Turnbull, of course, was never. he's part of the business community, was chair of Goldman Sachs, for example, So I I suppose we can say at least he's consistent there. And again, reducing weekend rates for people who don't work weekends or who get paid so insanely well that working weekends is nothing for them was selfish, was destructive, and it hasn't worked. It's insane. And all that's going to happen is that people are going to realize that rates will have to go up again and there'll be the usual bleating and complaining from the same rent seekers and hypocrites. And it's the same hypocrites who say, oh, if you work hard, you're not working hard enough. Speak to any worker in a sweatshop. Speak to any agricultural worker in Africa. See how far hard work gets you there. It should get them everywhere I'm absolutely in favor of equality and making sure that everybody has the same equality of opportunity at the very least but hard work only works for certain workers
1: you're listening to new politics you can subscribe to us on apple or google podcasts listen through soundcloud spotify and amazon audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at patreon up next the National Party continues to resist action on climate change, and it's a problem Scott Morrison needs to sort out very quickly. We set
0: in the sail to the place on the map from which no one has ever returned. Drawn by the promise of the joker and the fool, by the lights of the crosses that burn. Drawn by the promise of the women and the ladies. The gold and the cotton and pearls It's the place where to keep all the darkness you need You're still away from the light of the world on this trip, baby Save me, save me from tomorrow I don't want to sail with this ship off
1: Climate change policy and energy continues to cause problems for the coalition, with the National Party refusing to agree to a net zero emissions target by 2050, and doing their absolute best to resist any sensible policy that could both benefit farmers and industries and protect the environment at the same time. This resistance doesn't make any political sense at all. Almost 80% of people in Australia support a target of net zero emissions by 2050, 91% support subsidies for renewable energy, 63% support a ban on new coal mines in Australia, and 60% say Australia should be doing a lot more about climate change issues. The National Party is claiming to be acting in the interests of regional Australia, but the Nationals' leader, Barnaby Joyce, owns substantial land interests near the gas fields of Narrabri. Matt Canavan's family owns substantial interests in coal mining, and fossil fuel and mining industries make substantial donations to the National Party. So their resistance might be more about the personal interest instead of the national interest. It's pretty clear that the National Party, with maybe a couple of
0: exceptions rent seekers, wroughters, failed farmers and people who aren't in it for the good of Australia, but the good of themselves and a limited number of donors. Ex-leader Michael McCormack was infamously asked if he could name any policies in the National Party that directly influenced farmers, and he couldn't think of one, which you'd have thought the leader of the party would have a couple, at least one, tucked away inside in case that question came up. Matt Canavan is a very strange figure. He keeps dressing up as workers. It's like he's seen the Barnaby Joyce career path and thinks it's going to be that, that if you act like a buffoon, you will be promoted with leadership. Now that may have worked for Barnaby and it may well work for Matt Canavan, but it won't work well for the electoral success of the National Party over time. National Party has managed to be a rump party, as is pointed out. The Greens get ten percent of the primary vote in Australia, and they hold a couple of Senate seats and a uh, one lower house seats. National Party have a substantial number of lower house seats and quite a few Senate seats, so there's a problem there in the voting system. National Party too seems to attract people who just aren't fit for office. Okay, George Christensen is apparently standing down at the next election. Matt Canavan, Barnaby Joyce, Bridget McKenzie. There are all types of con artists, rotters, spivs, small town councillors with national budgets. And if you look at the history of all of those three, it's not a happy or a pleasant When they go, I don't know what they expect their legacy is going to be, but it won't be a positive and it won't even be at least they tried to build Australia and it was a noble failure. I guess money talks and ambition talks and power talks. And when Canavan speaks of this type of stuff, it is because he's not worried about the future of Australia. It's because he's worried about the future of his career post-politics, which may be coming sooner than he thinks.
1: Well, this is all going to get down to stakeholder management and political interests of those stakeholders. The Liberal Party might be the political wing of News Corporation, but it seems like the National Party is the political wing of the mining industry. They no longer represent farmers, but they are now supporters of agribusiness and mining, companies such as the Hancock Corporation, and that's owned by Gina Reinhart. And as far as climate change policy is concerned, you can see where this is all going to end up. As part of this stakeholder management and the management of political interests and trying to pay off and appease these different sectors, If it does continue in the way that it's currently going and the way that we predict that it's going to turn out, it's likely that Australia will end up with a hybrid system of all these different climate change plans, subsidies, taxes, schemes, and ideas that will end up being very inefficient and difficult to manage. Probably similar to the NBM, where that's a mishmash of different technologies that all contribute to a poor broadband system across Australia. And this seems to be a process which is very symptomatic of this particular government. Instead of doing the right thing, the first time, which is what they should have done with the NBN or the vaccinations rollout, they seek political benefit at every opportunity, personal interests and trade-offs for political favours that need to be repaid in the future, and everyone loses out. And that's how we end up with plans that end up being ineffective. Exactly. The National Party hold
0: a disproportionate amount of power, and when it is governed by fools and rotters, it affects the whole of Australia. It's interesting that the Northern Territory doesn't have a lot of National Party representation and neither does Western Australia. Areas that you'd think would be the National Party home, not that their agricultural parties are uh, much better, but the National Party struggles to get out of the East Coast. And when you consider that, that the mining firms that are in the pocket of the National Party are basically based in Western Australia in the Northern Territory, It says a lot about the nature of these lines of influence.
1: Well, the Nationals' leader in the Senate, Bridget McKenzie, you referred to her before, I thought that she was caught up in a corruption scandal a few years ago, but that seems to have all been forgotten now. But at the moment, she's having a go at inner city seats. And whenever the National Party has problems, they seem to attack the cities and the latte set and the red wine socialists for wanting too much action on climate change. (laughs) With... <laughs> The people that the National Party represents or the people that they keep saying that they represent, regional Australia, these are the people that are going to be the worst affected by climate change. There's water supply issues, rising temperatures, droughts. The National Party should actually be at the forefront of climate change and leading the way for the environment. And we talked about this before, the the idea of new and innovative ways of thinking about economic change. But the same approach has to be taken to the environment and climate change, not just the National Party, but the Liberal Party as well. But with representatives such as, well, you mentioned some of these before, Barnaby Joyce, Matt Canavan, Bridget McKenzie, Kevin Pitt, David Littleproud, there's absolutely no hope of the National Party leading or being at the forefront of climate change. And the more that you look at the actions of the National Party and the MPs that represent the party, it's not the political party representing regional Australia. It's a party that represents corruption and the vested interests that are working against the interests of regional Australia. I'd forgotten Keith Pitt, such a mediocre performer. David
0: Littleproud, once touted as a leader. Now, maybe he'd be better as Barnaby, but then I've got a couple of blocks of wood out the back that would be better than Barnaby. It's a shame that the party of McEwen, the party of Fisher, the party of Page, has devolved to this. Whether it will manage to hang around because of its loyalty or it's because of its loyal base or whether it will slowly die and and be replaced by a socially conservative Green Party. or well, there are very strong Green councils in rural Victoria and rural New South Wales voted in by farmers who have watched the climate change and who are very worried about it and who are seeing the National Party doing nothing. The Shooters, Farmers and Fishers Party seems to have dropped off the radar a bit. It totally hammered out the national party candidate in orange a couple of elections back although it hasn't seemed to be able to capitalize on this although the the member there is still very well entrenched and still very popular and a good local member and regular listeners of the podcast know that i will always support good local members and good local members don't rot and good local members don't rip off their communities and there's all that but they also represent them very well and even if i don't agree with how they do with what they're doing I will support that always. We could be seeing the the dying of a the second longest political party in Australia and one of the longest in the world. The Country Party was formed in 1920 because they figured that Billy Hughes wasn't interested enough and the Nationalist Party wasn't interested enough in rural concerns. So it was formed to make sure that rural people were represented in Canberra and has, unlike its other two parties, Labour and Liberal, has never split It's had remarkably stable leadership till recently, which may be a sign of its dying. It has had remarkably stable members and remarkably stable success. The National Party always win 12 or 13 seats. In a bad election, they might win eight. In a good one, they might win 15. But there's that guaranteed 10 to 13 seats that they know that they're going to get, which the Liberal Party know they need usually to make coalition with. So they've put themselves into a very good position. Whether they'll be able to sustain that, I don't know. It's going to require generational change, and that's for sure.
1: Now, David, you and I both believe that strong action needs to be taken on climate change, and that's just not an opinion that we hold amongst ourselves. It's an opinion that's strongly shared by almost 80% of the electorate, that action should be taken on climate change and more should be done by the federal government. So you're thinking, well what will satisfy the national party they're only a small rump of the coalition they only receive around four percent of the national vote yet they're holding all of australia to ransom so there just seems to be this disparity between national opinion within the electorate about action needing to be taken on climate change yet we've got a national party that is selected by just four percent of the national electorate holding Australia to ransom and that's an unsustainable process Scott Morrison does need to take some believable form of climate change policy to the electorate in the lead-up to the next election and even though we know that he's not going to commit to it and it will probably only be a policy to announce for the election and then it will be something that never happens it gets forgotten about just something that's completely ignored after the election but he does have to make some kind of an announcement in the lead-up to the next federal election it seems like the national party aren't there to help him out you can't do very much when you're
0: becoming electorally irrelevant and as the scandals build too bridget Mackenzie seems to be rotting again barnaby is barnaby keith pitt doesn't seem to be across his portfolios and is probably not one of the stellar performers of the government christensen keeps threatening to do damage but never does but actually does but in ways he doesn't intend
1: on it goes my feeling is that the only solution really to climate change issues is to vote these people out they're like real life trolls and they're they're just generally troublemakers australia does deserve much better than these time wasters, but that's the only solution as far as I can see. These people just have to be voted out of office, and whether they remain as their local MPs, that's a separate issue, but you just don't want these people anywhere near the levers of government. They've caused too much damage so far, they're too much trouble, they're time wasters. We don't need these people in Australian politics anymore.
0: We don't. Their backers also should be taxed out of existence if they're not doing anything illegal. The noxious effect they've had on the Australian polity has been destructive and not good for anyone except themselves. And as the market changes, it won't even be good for themselves too. What we like in Australia, and I think what we like in quite a lot of countries, is agile and dynamic business practice. People get successful, people get entrenched, and they resist change. Of course, the best innovations are based on risk and change management, and we just don't have that in the country at the moment.
1: That's it for this New Politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.